Today we're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 6, starting with verse 47, and to the end of the chapter. Uh, we broke this up since there's 71 verses into three different sermons, and it's, it's neat how uh, taking it a third, a third, a third, how the different applications have come out of this. Uh, the one th- what we saw before, previously, is that Jesus' miracles led to teachings, and he always used these supernatural events where the crowd was ooing and eyeing, but they were so infantile in their spirituality that he had to always morph into a teaching. And the teaching has he presenting himself as the bread of life. Uh, because the Lord knew the motivations of many were not pure. And even today, we've spoken about this. People come to God for the wrong reasons. Uh, what can I get out of God? What could he do for me? Don't necessarily want a relationship with him. And Jesus is trying to explain to them that God wants so much more for them. Now, in this sermon, this one's going to be tougher. It's going to be a little harder to digest than the last two because his teaching is going to lead to the Lord challenging and testing his hearers. People don't like that. We don't like it today. But it's a mark of a true ministry. My pastor challenged me many times and put me in uncomfortable positions. But it challenged me to grow and to mature. So today we're going to learn a ministry paradigm or a ministry model uh, in today's sermon where many, the majority of the crowd, actually leave Jesus, uh, which is, again, odd to our success-minded Western Christian mind. So we'll start with verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So the main portion of this teaching, now if we go back to the prior sermons, is Jesus does a miracle. He multiplies a few pieces of bread and some fish, and he feeds well over five, ten, maybe 15,000 of the followers. So the people are blown away by this miracle. Uh, then they start getting into this philosophical discussion, and somehow now the crowd is reminiscing about Exodus 16 in the Old Testament where God rained down the manna that every day the children of Israel would uh, collect this bread-like substance and it would sustain them physiologically so they wouldn't die out in the wilderness. So, in, in essence, they go from Jesus' miracle to the manna, and then they challenge Jesus in a sense, well, you know, can you do something like that? Uh, we, we like the first uh, miracle that you did, but do some more tricks for us. You know, we want to be entertained. And Jesus explains to them, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread which came down from heaven. Uh, and he says that 11 times, I counted, in this chapter. And he's basically saying, this is the fulfillment. This is the, the archetype. This is the culmination of, of everything you saw in the Old Testament, that manna was only a type of what God gives you through his son, speaking about himself. You know, they were so focused on this manna, which was going to feed them daily, but if they had manna on Monday and then didn't eat it for two weeks, they would have died from, from malnutrition. Uh, so there was, a, there was limitations with that manna, but Jesus is saying, as the bread of life, I don't just want to help your physical needs, which the body dies. He goes, I want you to live forever. I want to give you eternal life. So as you feed on the bread of life, these things are available to you by God. They were myopic. They were short-sighted. All I could think about was, my stomach is rumbling. I need something to put in it. 
The woman at the well in chapter 4 was also myopic. And it's the same thing today. We live in an instant gratification society. You know, I, I have a new phone, and I have this application on the phone, and it says, get it now. You know? So I piqued my curiosity, but I'm afraid to press the button because I don't know what's going to pop out of the phone. <laughs> Maybe after service, some of you can help me with that application. But hey, it, it, you know, it's attractive to us in the United States. Well, get it now. Well, I can have something right now. Gee, I wonder what it is. I didn't press the button yet. But it can be the same thing in the church. I hate to say it. You know, believers can come to church and they, they want it now. It's a beautiful day. It's in the 90s. I got plans for the rest of the day. Pastor Joe, don't go over 30 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Um, I actually have a pastor friend, and don't do this here, but uh, there was a gentleman in church who would set his watch to 35 minutes and it would beep loudly so the pastor would know it's going too long. Listen, I'll collect your watch. We're not doing that here. <laughs> so, you know, so it's in the church. It's it believers. You know, we, we sometimes the, the bad things of the world get into the church. And I mean the collective body of believers. And it's not a good thing. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Another I am statement. Uh, we've covered this many times. Ego, me, I, me. Um, same statement made in Exodus 3 when the Father speaks to Moses. Jesus is, is not mincing words here. He's equating himself with God. And the giving of his flesh probably has to do with dying on the cross, giving up his flesh for the life of the world. He so badly wanted to give them eternal life. But they just kept focusing on these miracles and, and interesting events that happened in the past. But he wanted so much more for them. You know, they were okay with the religious, physical manifestations, but they didn't want a relationship with God. And today, many are satisfied with their denomination, with their ritual, with what they do. And they're not really interested in a relationship with their creator. I have to qu ask you this question. Is eternal life attractive to you? Okay, now to some, depends on what group I'm speaking to, may say life is a sentence. You, know, you don't know what I have to deal with every day. Well, let me sweeten the pot for you. In Revelation 21, it says it's going to be sans the tears, you know, without crying, without pain, without cancer treatments, radiation, without going to surgical procedures. All that stuff is done. Depression, sadness, it's, it's gone. Anything negative. So now eternal life sounds a heck of a lot better, doesn't it? And this is what the Lord offers through his son. Now I'm going to start to read 52. And, you know, if you ever watch a video, uh, if it's a hard video, they'll say viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm going to tell you right now before I start reading, hearer discretion is advised. And as I go through the scripture, we're going to explain, and Jesus is going to explain what he means, but it's going to come off. Many of you may not have heard this teaching before. So he says in verse 52, because it's not popular to exegete, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In John chapter three, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb for a second time? Didn't understand the metaphor. 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I have, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And I'll just jump to verse 66. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Hey, did I get your attention? <laughs> Pay attention. This is some serious teaching. Jesus steps it up. And that's the, uh, the title of today's message, stepping it up. Now, if we go to Leviticus, let's put all this together. Let's look at the background. This teaching ends up at a synagogue in Capernaum, synagogue where the law is. The law, you know, the first five books of Moses. And even today in Judaism, uh, one thing that, and there's a lot of different schisms, but one thing that's common is that the first five books are held as sacred. So we look at Genesis 9, we look at Leviticus 17. There's a prohibition against eating of a man's flesh or drinking his blood. So no doubt, some of them recoiled in horror as he said this. And I'm just curious for you this morning, I know we have some visitors, raise your hand, how many of you have heard this teaching before? Or I'm sorry, how many of you have never heard this teaching before? Okay, so some of you, you're like, wow, this is pretty heavy stuff. I'm certainly, you haven't heard it on the, uh, the TV evangelist station because they only have a certain methodology that they use and they're going to skip this and they're going to avoid it like the plague. But don't leave yet. He had to use hyperbole, which is exaggeration. He had to use a parable to make his point. And sadly, many have turned this into a doctrine. And I'll just go to that real briefly. Transubstantiation. Some denominations believe that the priest or a minister can actually take, and we're going to have communion today, perfect timing, the way the Lord did this. You know, they take the bread and, and the wine and they magically say a prayer and all of a sudden that piece of bread becomes Jesus' actual body and when you're chewing on it, you're crunching his body and the, the wine is his blood. That's not what he says. And as we go through this, we'll see that that's taking this way out of context. As a matter of fact, some will look at this scripture and say, well, this must have to do with the Lord's Supper or communion. Maybe a little bit of allusions to it, but mostly no. Because this is talking about salvation. Remember, the, the Greek terms for eat are in the aorist. And that's a Greek tense. And the aorist means a once and for all action. When we take communion, we do that on a repetitive basis. So we're not really not talking about the Lord's Supper here. He's speaking about salvation and sustaining our spiritual life. So how do we know that Jesus didn't mean to drink his blood and eat his flesh literally? Two reasons. Number one, because he says so in the next few verses. And number two, because it was a violation of God's law, which he had a hand in creating. And God doesn't contradict himself. Right? So we know that that's not the case here. So what does he mean? Number one, he wants his hearers to know what he offers. And he's also testing them and challenging them and saying to them, is this what you want? Is this what you really want? Pay attention. Because this is what is offered to you, this eternal life. I'll go through them step by step. Number one, in verse 53, basically if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, which means really having faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, giving up of his flesh, giving up of his body, cutting his life short on this earth so that he could die a substitutionary death on the cross, which was spoken about and prophesied in the Old Testament so that we could have eternal life. Right? If you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood metaphorically, you don't have life in you. 
What is that life? We know that the Spirit gives life, and he tells us that later. In other words, God says we, we, we are born into this world. Everyone had a mom here. Everyone was given birth to. If you're living and breathing, you came through a certain way. And we have physical life. But the Bible tells us that Jesus said you must be born again of a spiritual nature to see the kingdom of heaven. So we can live our whole lives saying, I feel blood coursing through my veins. I got an adrenaline rush. I'm alive. But we're dead until we have that life of the spirit in us. Flesh will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, the Bible tells us. So, the second point, verse 54. This metaphoric practice leads to eternal life, but it also leads to resurrection. I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. The Jerusalem saints, Matthew's gospel tells us. And then there will be other resurrections. We, we talked about the rapture where the Lord comes for his people. And then we talk about the great white throne judgment where the living, where the, you know, the wicked will be resurrected. Even from the sea will give them up and he will judge them and punish them for eternity. The wicked dead. Verse 56. He speaks about this abiding relationship, which I don't want to talk too much about right now. We're going to cover that in John 15. So what is he doing? Why such shock content? Because they all understood eating. You know, if you were 30, 40, 50 years old, for decades you've been eating. You have to. Otherwise you'd be dead. So they all understood putting food and drink in their mouths so they can sustain life. So now what he has to do is take that mindset and transfer it to feeding the soul and the spirit, which are things that human beings are not generally thinking about. Right? I would just say this, that this, now I'm going to really change the way you eat or the way you think about eating and maybe after you leave here and have lunch. Do you realize whether you're a vegetarian or whether you're a meat eater, something had to die to give you that food. The chicken gave up his life. The pig gave up his life. The flower that was really, you know, the, the head of lettuce that was beautifully blooming in the sun, somebody cut it and put it on your plate so that you could eat it. Right? So things die to give us life. And Jesus is saying, you know, he, he's trying to change the channel in their minds. So, you know, as you go through the drive through you'd be like, I don't know if I want to eat this today. You know, something had to die to give me this. But hey, it's the truth. He has to explain a spiritual intimacy in which regular words won't do the trick. Hyper- hyperbole must be used. Now, I would, I would tell you this, or I would, uh, I would look at this and say that this is a way for him to wake us up. So we can look at the people back then, and they, they listened, and they came, and he starts to say these things. And then we can look at it today and say, wow, it seems a little harsh. I've never heard this before. How do I explain this to my friends who are not believers? But the truth is, he's trying to shock us out of our complacency. And brothers and sisters, this morning, 2,000 years later, we also need to be shocked out of our complacency. I talked to you about the human trafficking. There's so many things going on in our country. Our country is being torn apart from the inside. So many people are without hope. They're desperate. You know, the, the drug companies for uh, psych drugs are making a killing because so many are on it. Okay, and, and I'm, not, I'm not castigating anybody for that. I'm just saying this is a world that's depressing. And I think as people of God, we need to wake up too. We need to see that there, every day someone's dying. Funeral, you know, you want to go into a business in this economy that's always going to do well, be a mortician. Because people are always dying. They're dying to get in there, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's a bad joke. 
But people are dying and stepping into eternity every day, every second of every day in a, a, an 8 billion uh, population world that we live in. So we also need to be pulled out of our complacency, realize that we represent God and we are an ambassadors to those who don't know the truth, who are not saved. We want to bring them into the kingdom. Right? So there's, there's a lot going on in this, in this message. 57. He says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, this is a progression to eat, from eat, to feed. And I I enjoy etymology, I enjoy where words come from, and I really enjoy going into the Greek, and I say, so what, what can I find in here that doesn't pop out in the English? The Koine Greek that everybody spoke in that society 2,000 years ago. Well, the Greek word for eat is phago, which is where we get the word phagocyte from, which is, in physiology, a leukocyte or something that chomps invaders of the body. So as the invaders come, these cells go in there, they eat them. But they don't really eat them to live. The word transitions from phago to trogo, which in the English we get the word trogon from, which is a tropical bird that feeds on uh, fruit. Or it's also used as in with, with an herbivore. What do they do? Uh, they're foragers. All day long, you know, herbivores munch a little here, munch a little there. They feed on those herbs to survive. So now we, we see something that's a little bit more intense. Trogo is a way of life. So what happens is you take the initial eating, right, that once and for all act, that believing on Jesus. He died on the cross for the remission of our sins. But then we also, we feed on him. In a spiritual sense, we have a relationship with him. And sadly, many Christians miss out on this. A lot of Christians have eaten, but not a lot are feeding. A way to daily draw strength and wisdom. And then believers will come and they'll be exasperated by life. You know, and, and they're so desensitized, some, to the world. They, they have the world's ways. They say, well, I really believe in Jesus Christ for my salvation. But, I mean, even on Facebook, people are not afraid to put their, their horrible lifestyles on there. And listen, anybody's welcome in this church. I don't judge anybody. You can stay on there for Facebook. I don't care. You know, it's what you, you get out of the Lord and the Bible, what you put into it. But when we're double-minded, the Bible says in James, we're unstable in all of our ways. So we, we've eaten. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But now I don't feed on anything but the world's junk food. Well, what's that going to do to me spiritually? We know that corn syrup and sugars and all those things will do to us physically, but if we're not trogo, you know, on, on Christ and his word and his truths, then we're feeding ourselves spiritual junk food, and the results are disastrous, and we will be exasperated by life. Verse 60, or let me just back up for a minute. There are many who will not teach certain portions of scripture and they will say that to you. Be careful of those ministries. It's too intense, it's too risky. You know, we gotta keep our numbers here. That's the attitude. Instead, Jesus ratchets it up. He tries to separate the believers from the make-believers, the wheat from the chaff. This type of teaching cannot be omitted in a true ministry. Verse 60, not easy to do, but it's nevertheless can't be omitted. 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Does it make you stumble? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? 
It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This is a rejection of the majority. Understand that. There were seekers. I would say if we're going to break this down by demographics and get the pie charts out and start splitting it up, the largest amount of people were the seekers. They just were there. They heard about the miracle. They called their friends from the village. They said, you got to check this out. So the masses, the majority, were the seekers. Then you had the 70 that he sent out two by two. From what I read, the only, the only ones that stayed were the 12. Remember, he sent them out two by two. They were disciples. They were followers. Didn't mean that they completely bought it. Didn't mean that they actually were, uh, tr- trusted him truly because a lot of them fell away. You had the 12, which were his closest, and you also had religious leaders that were part of this group that were always trying to challenge him. So this is a, a hodgepodge uh, group of, of followers that were there at the time. But I would tell you that the majority left. Why? Because he told them the truth. He wanted more for them. One more Greek lesson, and then we'll move on. Verse 60 says, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Two Greek words here. Number, number one, the first one is hard. The word scleros, where we get sclerosis from. A hardening, a toughness, and actually, in some translations, harsh. The second word, understand. Greek word is akuo, where we get the word acoustics from. To hear or give an audience to. So in other words, this is a tough teaching. Who can voluntarily submit to it? And I'll just give you the urban translation. Who can stomach this stuff? You know, this is, this is brutal. That's what they were saying about Jesus' teaching. In other words, you know, I, this, this is difficult stuff here. Now, are we always looking for positive teaching? Because if we follow the Lord, we wouldn't get it. So why should we demand it in church or any ministry or TV ministry? Only presenting a one-sided view of the scripture is false teaching. And that weak, anemic doctrine can only survive in a country where there's weak, anemic Christianity who who demands it. And that's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry. True biblical teaching will be hard. It will be scleros. It will be difficult for the flesh. It will be difficult for when I look in the mirror and I I love myself because I see myself every day. It's going to be hard when that reflection is marred and I realize spiritually I don't look that good. It's going to be difficult for the me-centered to hear. Let's ratchet it up a little more. True discipleship must also follow true teachings. Remember, the discipleship has to go with the teaching. I'm going to digress for a moment and tell you that the leadership team here, including their wives, if you ask them an honest question, they're going to give you an honest answer. What's the cost? We lose relationships. We lose friendships. The temptation is just to get along and look the other way and put blinders on, sweep things under the rug because, you know, it hurts to lose relationships. But then we wouldn't be true to ourselves and we wouldn't be true to the Lord. This is necessary in ministry and in leadership. Verse 61. Jesus asked them, does this offend you or make you stumble because of what I said? And I would ask you this morning, Are there passages in the scripture that cause you to stumble? That say, gee, I'd like to flip on TV and see one of these real positive guys 
uh, because Pastor Joe was really a downer this morning. I'm not going to skip this portion of scripture. If our desire is to feel good all the time or to have his steady diet of a Joel Osteen type of teaching where his, he says specifically, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to be negative. Well, if you teach this stuff, you do have to offend people. But the, the issue is not with him. The issue is with us if we need to hear that about ourselves all the time. That we live in a society where we always want to feel good about ourselves. That's not true Christianity. What we're doing is we're trying to change God. Now, the honesty in these people who follow Jesus was they said, you know what, kids, pack up the family, pack up the little mat, you know, the picnic bag, the few leftover fish, we're out of here. I can't listen to this anymore. At least they were honest with the Lord and they left. But what do we do? We try to change God. We try to find teachings that fit our lifestyle or what we want to hear. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do. True Bible teaching and discipleship will be offensive at times. And it was to them. Verse 62, he says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? This is a, a picture of the incarnation and the, and the resurrection. He says, I came down from heaven. So, you know, he came down from heaven, took the form of a man when he lived his life. And then he was crucified, died for our sins, and was resurrected back to the place where he was before. Kind of like completing the circuit. So he's, he's pointing to them about the substitutionary death and the resurrection. Verse 63, he says, The spirit gives life, but the flesh profits nothing. In essence, in retrospect, saying, I wasn't literally saying that you all can get together and start gnawing on my skin and my fingernails and stuff. That's not what I was saying. These words are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. When we try to do for God or do something out of our own strength and we think that we're doing a religious duty, it's not. What was, must we do to get into heaven? We, we saw this uh, last Sunday and Jesus said, you have to believe. What we want to do, we want to be a part of the equation. Jesus said, you got to believe. The spirit gives life. We cannot work our way into heaven. We must be born again of the spirit. We must have a part of God residing in us, and the only way to do that is to trust in what Jesus did for us. We can't. We, at the end of our life, if we think we're going to do, 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 well, I did good deeds, and, and I, I try to think positive thoughts, and I was very generous, and you get to heaven, it isn't going to cut it. It doesn't work. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing that we can do can earn us salvation. Verse 66, many of his disciples walked away and followed no more. How quickly some abandon God when it gets difficult. You know, we have a society that gets bored easily, and, and the problem is here too. Quickly abandoning things when it gets difficult. We want everything, including spirituality, and we want it to come quick. Otherwise, we quit. You know, it's the drive through mentality. You, you you want to go through the drive-through and get your, you know, value meal five, and hey, can you throw in some patience and maturity with that in a nice little package? Hey, that's great, sir. It'll be ten bucks. Hey, that's awesome. It doesn't come like that. It comes with stretching. It comes with trials. It comes with pain. And Jesus, like he did with these, will say some hard things. Will ask us to do things. Will show us some difficult things about ourselves, and then still ask, "Do you really want it? Do you really want it?" Let's look at the element of Jesus losing the crowd. Remember, the majority here. Again, the Western-minded Christianity, what would they do? 
If it was an average man and they didn't know it was Jesus, they would say, he blew it. What a fool. Didn't he know that the more numbers means more tithes and more tithes means a a greater successful ministry and more services and expansions of the church? Didn't anybody tell Jesus that? What was he doing? Look at some of these mega ministries. He, He completely, he failed. Well, God lost a third of the angels, we're told in the scripture. What did he do wrong? He's God. I always say, did it, was his health plan not good enough? Did he, not, did he pay the minimum wage? What was the issue? The issue is the bane of free will. That's what it is. The grass is greener on the other side. I could do it better myself. I don't need this. And I don't want to tolerate this. That's the answer. If we model ministry after Christ, and if we teach the truth, we will experience ebb and flow. Furthermore, artificially, I say this artificially, I respect a man who has a large church in the thousands and preaches this stuff because he knows he may lose some and he can't get to all those people out there because the church is so big. So I do respect a man who has a large ministry and will preach the hard things of the scripture knowing that like Jesus, he may lose some and it could affect the budget. But you got to do the right thing. You got to be true to form. You got to be true to the Lord. Artificially trying to maintain big, big, big can be an indicator that something is wrong. Keep them happy. Keep the money coming in. Don't challenge them. Don't offend them. Keep feeding the pig. That's not what it's about. How dare we ever think that we can improve 2,000 years later on what the Lord started? Bigger isn't always better, and prosperity doesn't always mean blessing or favor from God. That's what Jesus tried to unbrainwash his disciples from thinking. They had this idea that if you were wealthy and doing well, that you must be in God's favor. And Jesus had a He had to undo that. Or if you were suffering and sick, then that means that God forsook you. We still think that today. But it's not true. It's not scriptural. The rabbis taught that of the day. So what do we do when we look at this? How do we, and and I just want to reach out to those especially who are considering ministry or feel that they have a call to be a pastor or a missionary or some type of ministry leader. Jesus didn't try to make everyone happy at the expense of truth. And he paid for it in relationships, in loss. So the other thing we can say is, well, it hurts to lose people, so don't get close to anyone and insulate yourself from the body that you're trying to reach. That wasn't Jesus' style either. Here's where we strike the balance. We love people. What happens when you love and you give of yourself? You make yourself vulnerable. We understand that we will be vulnerable, vulnerable and we will be hurt. That's an occupational hazard, so to speak, of ministry but we don't stop giving the truth. I had a young couple in my office not too long ago and we were, they were interested in getting involved in a particular ministry and one of my last questions on this short interview was, have you guys been hurt? Have your hearts been broken? Did you disciple somebody and they left you or they talked about you or whatever? And they're like, oh yeah. And I'm like, okay, you're ready. You know what I'm saying? It's the truth. You know, it's, that's how God grooms us at times. Verse 67 Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the remnant. If you're familiar with your Old Testament in Isaiah 6, it was not a good job. Uh, What do I have to do, God? Well, I'm going to stand up, Lord. I want to serve you. What do I have to do? Well, you're going to have to talk to these people and tell them about me and you know, tell what my word says. None of them are going to listen to you. 
Oh, gee. And, he, and Isaiah actually says, well, how long do I have to do this for? You know? He was a human being like the rest of us. That doesn't sound like a fun job. Well, what are the positives of this ministry? The remnant. There's always going to be a few that remain. And, and again, a, a, a modern translation of this, the remnant in the nutshell is, when the majority flakes out, the minority hangs tough. That's your remnant. Verse 68, what other conclusion can we come to when dealing with God? No matter how difficult things become, we continue to follow and we continue to trust him. We don't quit. When the going gets tough, we don't get going. A mature believer hangs tight. You know, I've, I've been reading articles lately of um, women who, you know, we have so much technology now. They're pregnant, they have a special needs child, and the offer is always, we'll terminate the pregnancy. And, you know, all, the, all kinds of uh, problems and things of the child growing up. And these women are choosing to keep their children. She's like, this is, this is I carry this child for, you know, I love this child. I want to love this child and take care of them. Well, and then you, they get so much opposition from the community. Check out some of the blogs. Oh, they're a drain on the healthcare system, this and that. So these ladies, you've got to give them credit. Some of them are single moms. And they're, they're giving birth and they're taking care of special needs children. And they're getting a hard time from those that are around them. Because our society, we're taught, quit, get rid of it. If it's a marriage and it's not working, cut your losses. Fish or cut bait. Let the fish go. Go get another one. There's plenty of fish in the sea. This is what we're taught. But the Bible teaches us otherwise, to stay in there, to hang tough. When God tells us things that we don't want to hear, when he shows us things about ourselves, that we stay with him, we don't leave him. He's God. Where are we going to go, Peter says? Where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. This is, this is the only source. 70. Jesus, said, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas was still with Jesus, but probably not for the right reasons at this point in ministry. And there's all kinds of speculation. Judas might have been a Messiah now type of guy, just like that crowd that tried to force him to be king. Come on, Jesus, when are you going to do this? When are you going to throw off the Roman yoke? Maybe not really there for the right reasons. Maybe he wasn't that concerned about his spiritual well-being. He just wanted to see Israel throw off the yoke of the Romans. And when it didn't happen, again, there's all kinds of speculation. Judas was chosen, but still responsible for the bad path he took in life. He was responsible for his actions. He could have repented and been forgiven. And my pastor told me that every solid ministry will have a Judas from time to time. It, it, it strengthens us. It teaches us about forgiveness. It matures us. It grows us. Again, should we try to have a perfect team and vet all of our uh, people that come to the church and see if there's anything weird about them, we're going to kick them out? No. A lot of times, those that cause problems help us to grow. It helps us for conflict resolution. Right? It helps us to learn forgiveness, love, maturity. And that's for the leadership. So this message is titled, Stepping It Up. It could also have been titled, Turning Up the Heat, Where the Rubber Meets the Road, The Wheat Versus the Chaff. I mean, you can throw in a bunch of different ones if, if, if you can. Think about it. But it is great to learn about God. However, at some point, we need to learn the, the deeper things about what God is saying, the meat. Apostle Paul tells us, the milk of the word versus the meat of the word. 
Now you're ready. This is the meat. This is the heavy stuff. In addition to that, he also may need to step it up, take us to the next level when it comes to discipleship. Okay, now there's accountability. Now that there's you know, things to that nature that maybe we didn't have the first four years of our Christian walk. Unfortunately, some will never submit to denying themselves. And they will remain immature even well into their elder years. God's word teaches us to deny ourselves foreign and hateful to ourself and our flesh. Let me tell you, for me personally, your pastor, I don't like to deny myself. If you think that I'm you know, on some super platform, you're kidding yourself. I still don't like when he teaches me lessons that stretch me and grow me. I don't like it, but I know it's good for me. And I kick and scream at times, but eventually I submit to his will. Sometimes I do really well, sometimes not so good, and he says, okay, let's do that again. You know? <laughs> How about learning it the first time? It'll go a lot easier. This is what you deal with when you walk with the Lord. If anyone tells you, well, when you become a Christian, everything becomes wonderful. You have no problems. They're lying to you. All you have to do is read the Bible. True ministry will challenge and test its hearers to see, A, if our motives are right, and B, if our actions match our beliefs. Now, I, I would tell you, my, my wife would back me up on this. That Actually, we were having this discussion yesterday. I said, I'm real thankful for the men in my life that gave me a hard time, that, that really um, didn't want to hear my excuses, that cut to the core, and that challenged me. And my wife says, I'm thankful for them too because I got the husband now that I wanted. You know what I'm saying? So, and I'm thankful for the women in her life that did the same with her. Ministry can be tough at times, but it's necessary. And I'll share a personal story. And I do this, why? Because, and most of the times I speak about my, my frailties, so that you can identify with me, and even though that I am the pastor, and this church is doing really well, it's really been a blessing to many, that you can see that I'm human like you. That you don't say, well, I'm just going to give up, and, and you know, I see what goes up there on the pulpit. And you think that that's my life, reflective, for the last you know, 17 or so years I've been a Christian? No. I even remember starting the church eight years ago, being the senior pastor, and, and because the last pastor left in sin and didn't tell me anything and left the church really much a mess in many ways. So it was hard. And the first few years, I did a lot of whining and complaining. And I called my pastor. I wouldn't call Pastor Luis, for those of you that know him, because I know he wouldn't be sympathetic to me. I see some laughs in the back. So I was smart. I called Pastor Lloyd. He's more soft-spoken, more gentle, more loving. And I said, listen, I think I bit off more than I can chew. I just want to quit. Get somebody else to do this. And there's silence on the other end. I'm like, are you there? He goes, yeah. He goes, you can't quit. I said, what do you mean, I can't quit? You can't make me stay here. I'm just not going to show up. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was an interesting conversation. And I was always told, if you tell Pastor Lloyd you don't want something, he'll remove you. I'm thinking, why isn't he removing me? You know, God has called you. You have to stay. Well, I haven't done that in a long time, but... I even went to my board, and Pastor Chris, you know, he was on the board too. I said, isn't there a provision in the board, in the bylaws, that says if the senior pastor loses his mental faculties, he has to be removed? I said, I think I'm losing it. He goes, you're not crazy. You're not going anywhere. It stretched me. It stretched my family. It stretched a lot of things. But I can tell you this, that I can't see doing anything else. When I see people get saved and I see 
growth, and I see um, just the, the great accounts, the great personal testimonies. You know, it's, it stretches you. You know, your life is not your own, but boy, you're working with God. What better team can you be on? When closing, this, may, this message may be for some who really feel the, the urge and the need to step up to the plate. Maybe you're looking for a little push, and this was the message that gave you a little bit of a push to get involved, to sacrifice a little bit more, to give up some of your freedoms, to be challenged, to be accountable. You know, there's many that are quitting, but that may not be for you. you know, God wants to entrust his kingdom to you. He wants to entrust other sheep to you. He wants to be, you to be a part of his ministry team. The stakes are higher. The commitment's greater. The sacrifices are big, but there's nothing like God using you. At the very least, God may be calling you to step up to the plate to rededicate your life and ask him for your next instructions. So don't waste this hard message. You know, let's take it to our hearts and, and just go home and pray about it, Lord. Just be by yourself with the Lord and say, Lord, what is it you want to show me through this? And maybe it's no coincidence that I didn't go to the beach today and I came to church. Or I, I waited to go to that barbecue until church was over. This is a message I needed to, to hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. And uh, it's tough. It's tough teaching this stuff. And I'm sure it's tough hearing the teaching. But you love us so much that you don't want us to be stagnated. You don't want us to be immature. You don't want us to be, spend decades as spiritual babies. You want us to grow, all of us. And that we...